So what is the most valuable thing that you own? Why don't you think about it for just a second? And I know you say, oh, my soul. No, I'm not looking for your Jesus answer Sunday school, all right? What's, what's the most valuable thing that you own? Some of you getting close. Some of, some of you said your house. And technically, that may be correct. You may have a classic car that's worth more. You may be thinking about purely sentimental value, thinking about something that a grandparent gave you or a parent gave you maybe before they passed away. But if you sit down and think about it, the, actually the most valuable thing that you own, I used to, to deal a little life insurance in a different time, and the most valuable thing that you own, if you were to die, the most valuable thing that you own is your income potential. Because if you die, you need to be able to replace for your family and your loved ones the amount of money that you're going to earn until you retire or until you would die naturally. And for somebody in their 30s, maybe in their 40s, that could be upwards of a million dollars, Right? So the most valuable thing you own is probably not something that you actually own. But I want to submit to you today that truthfully, the most valuable thing that you own is this piece of flesh and muscle in your mouth that you call a tongue. That's the most valuable thing that you own because it has greater potential to do greater good than anything that you have. And it also has greater potential to do greater harm than anything that you have. In fact, the Bible tells you that, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, that does not mean what the preachers on TBN says that it means. That does not mean that you are going to speak and create things into being, whether it's good or bad. What that means is that you have the power to bless people and you have the power to kill people with the things that you say. James wrote in James chapter 3 and verse number 5, he said, So also the tongue is a small member, one of the smallest parts of your body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. Set on fire with hell. File those verses into the category of verses we don't really believe to be true, right? With your tongue, you can encourage somebody or you can discourage somebody. With your tongue, you can complain or you can pray. With your tongue, you can lift somebody up or you can tear them down. Jesus said we would answer for every idle word that we speak. That's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it? But imagine for just a moment the power your words actually have. Studies have been done that suggest that in the course of your life, on average, you're probably going to interact with about 80,000 different people. That's like a football stadium full of different people. On average, you have about 27 different conversations every day. And you will employ every day about 16,000 words in the course of those conversations. And in the course of those conversations, we talk about everything, don't we? We talk about subjects we're passionate about. We talk about things we don't care about. We talk about subjects we know a lot about and things we have no clue about. I mean, you've had conversations giving people medical advice, haven't you? Oh, that sounds like a kidney. I remember my, I had problems with my kidney. You don't know. You've given people legal advice, haven't you? Well, you need to call a lawyer. That's what I do. You talk about weather, and, and even the people that get paid to talk about weather, they don't have any idea. Paid it, we would talk about, we talk about economics. We don't have any idea about how all this stuff works. We talk about everything Nick Saban needs to do and everything Gus Malzahn needs to do. We talk about all this stuff that we have no clue about. And we talk about things we know a lot about. We talk about things that matter and things that don't matter. But have you ever considered that the words that you speak... Your tongue could be used for the glory of God for eternal things. So last week, I started talking to you about how we share the gospel as believers. And I know that as soon as we start talking about that, that some of you start to think, you know, I can't do that. 
I've never been trained to do that. I don't know how to do that. Uh, I'm just normal. I'm not a pastor. Everybody knows pastors aren't normal, but I'm just a normal believer. I can't, I can't do that. I can't share the gospel and witness and evangelize. Well, what I want to show you tonight really is as simple as this. That if you can talk, if you can talk, you can share the gospel. In fact, even if you can't talk, if you could just do sign language, you could share the gospel. And if you can't do sign language, if you can draw a really simple picture, you can share the gospel. And if you can't do anything else, just grin for Jesus, all right? But before we look into the text of Scripture we're going to look into tonight, I had a brother in our church tell me this week about an opportunity that God gave him to share the gospel with somebody he's been praying for a long time at work. And I want to celebrate that story with him, but I don't want to share it. So, Brother Keith, I want you to come, man, and I want you to share what the Lord let you do this week that allowed you to uh, speak for the glory of the Lord. I hope that's on. I don't know. We'll find out shortly. Testing. So first off, y'all pray Brett don't get mad at me for talking about stuff at work too much that I'm not supposed to be talking about. But, <laughs> um, but no, that seriously, and many of y'all know in prayer group a couple weeks back, you know, I told y'all that I really struggle with how do you share the gospel with people in in Alabama that already know that they're saved. You know, you talk to somebody and you ask them about Jesus or church or whatever, and they'll tell you that they know Jesus, but then their actions 100% <laughs> prove that they... Either they don't know him or they're a long way away from him. So the simplest thing sometimes, you know, we all get caught up on how to share and what kind of outline do I use and what scripture do I use and, and all that stuff. Well, the simplest thing, the other day we were standing there and somehow we were talking about animals. And I said something about how Peter would absolutely hate God because of the Old Testament and how many animals were killed in the Old Testament. And so one of the guys that claims to be a Christian asked me about sacrifice in the old testament so i got to basically do a crash course all the way from the first sacrifice uh, where god killed an animal to make some clothes for adam and eve all the way to the passover and i got to share how you know if you had blood over the doorpost the death angel passed over you and how without blood on our doorpost now that that we're doomed right and so i got to take it to there and i got to go all the way from there to the cross well, I went to the high priest first, and I told him about the high priest and how they had to go to the high priest once a year and ask for, you know, for forgiveness, and they would sacrifice. And I got to take him from there to the cross and tell him about how Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. And this guy followed me, y'all. We were just having a casual conversation at first and didn't dawn on me that, hey, you're sharing the gospel. But he literally followed me all the way to the break room while I was getting a drink out of the machine and while I was getting the drink and after I got the drink and as we walked back, the whole way he's following me, he's listening to, to this all the way to Christ and how he's the ultimate sacrifice. And then when we get done, he said, man, I've never really heard it like that. I didn't understand. I've never understood it to be that way. So it's just, you know, it didn't dawn on me till it was over with that y'all just used you to, to, to share Christ with somebody that you've been praying for. So you can do it. You just have to be willing and ready. Amen. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. What it takes... To be a faithful witness is simply to be able to turn an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Sometimes it's so easy, like Brother Keith, you don't know what's happened until it's over with. And hey, thank the Lord for that. But how, how do we turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations? How do we use our words for the glory of God? I want to show you that tonight from a place where a man who was not afraid, was not ashamed to speak up for Jesus... 
and show you that if we are going to turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations, there are two unshakable commitments that we have to have. And those are in Colossians chapter 4. So take your Bible, please, and turn there with me tonight. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. And when you found that, we'll stand as we read these uh, few verses of Scripture. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. And the Bible says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You can be seated. Trust the Lord is going to help us as we think about these verses tonight. Now, like a lot of the books of the New Testament, the book of Colossians is a book that is written to a church that's having issues. And what nobody is exactly sure on is what the issue or what the problem in the church of Colossae was. There are a lot of different theories. One theory is that the church is starting to kind of be led into this ancient cult of Gnosticism that confuse the nature of Christ, confuse the nature of the world itself, and confuse the nature of truth. There's one theory that says in Colossae, maybe they are starting to be heavily persecuted by uh, Jewish people around them, and so they're starting to kind of um, compromise the truth of the gospel. But I think the likely answer to what's happening in this church of Colossae is that there's, there's this kind of ancient pagan folk mysticism that involved some weird secret voodoo rituals that were like praying to angels to get spiritual forces off your back. I know that's weird, but look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Now he writes this for a reason, but he says this. He says, therefore let no one, Colossians 2, 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now notice what he says. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, that's beating up your physical flesh to prove how spiritual you are, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Now, I think Paul's writing about something that maybe we don't even have a real frame of reference for. But whatever the problem is, we are 100% clear about what the solution is. Because Paul, in these verses, gives us the solution. And the solution is to make much of Jesus. Focus on Christ. Have a vision of Jesus that takes your breath away. And that other stuff will disappear. The asceticism and the worship of angels. That's not going to be near as impressive the bigger that Jesus gets. So he says in Colossians 3.1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what Paul does in the book of Colossians is he opens by giving them this huge, larger-than-life, sweeping vision of the glory and the preeminence of Christ. 
But in the second half of the book, starting in chapter 3, he gives them a vision for what a life centered on this Christ looks like. What does it look like for someone to really share in the life of Jesus? Folks, as a church, we exist to share the life of Jesus. We are here tonight to share in His life through worship. We meet in Sunday school in DT to share His life together. And we hope that by God's grace, we have opportunities like Brother Keith had to go into the world and to share the life of Jesus. We are here at every point to share life. But what does it look like for us to do that with our words? Well, in the verses that we've read tonight, in this very personal request for prayer and this section of counsel to the church, Paul shows us what it means to speak up for Jesus. And he writes to this church, simply speak up, speak up for Jesus. So tonight, what I want to do is pull these two commitments that I see out of these verses to show you how you can, all of you can, use your words to bring glory to Jesus if you will speak up for him. And the first commitment Paul has is that he wants this church to do what he would do, which is to speak to God about others. Speak to God about others. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now that's the kind of thing you expect to read in the Bible, right? The Bible tells us to pray all the time. And all the time the Bible tells us to pray. It says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray without ceasing. And you know, I hope, that Christians are supposed to be a prayerful people. And you would agree with me if I told you we don't pray enough, right? right, Good, you can agree so we can move on. Uh, Sometimes, though, we pray and we think that prayer is only about fixing our problems. Sometimes we have a mistaken idea that prayer is about somehow changing God's mind. God forbid. But here Paul wants prayer to have a two-pronged focus. He wants it to be an expression of thanksgiving to God. You see what he says in the text. Being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. And he also wants them to pray that God would perform the miracle of turning his prison into a pulpit where he has opportunities to share the gospel with clarity with the people around them. Now, there's a lot that I could say about prayer in these verses. I could take you to Luke 18 where Jesus taught us that men should always pray and not faint. I can tell you how God expects us to live our lives with prayer always in the background of our heart and mind. One thing I would point out is this, folks, is that even if we are not praying as much as we should be, we have every reason in the world to be thankful, don't we? Paul says pray with thanksgiving. If you don't have anything else to pray about, you can pray and thank God for all that he's done. You can pray and thank him that grace taught your heart to fear and then grace relieved the fears it put in your heart. You can thank God that whereas you once were blind, now you see. You can thank God that he will be your shield and portion forever. You can thank God that as long as this life endures, God has secured your hope in your heart with his word. You have every reason in the world to thank God. And I'd love to go forward in that. But what I want to do is show you how Paul says to the church of Colossae, your prayers can make a difference where I am in prison. Now, you people love Jesus, and you want God to do great things in your life. So if you were in jail for preaching Jesus tonight, how would you want us at church to pray for you? Let me tell you how I'd want y'all to pray. I'd be on that pay phone with my one call a day or whatever you get. I'd be saying, somebody pray, i get out of here. Pray that God starts smiting some of these people, Old Testament style, so that I can make a break for it. What do you think you're going to be praying for? That's not what Paul prays for, is it? He prays for open doors, but not those kind of open doors. It's amazing. Look at what he says. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. That God would do the miracle through your prayers of turning this prison into a pulpit where we could broadcast the Word of God out to all these people who are around us. Is that not amazing? And Paul says to the church of Colossae, here's what I want you to get. He says, your prayers can make a difference in that goal. 
You see, through prayer, all of us are invited to join in the great adventure of sharing the gospel. Paul believes that God works in response to our prayers and that our prayers should be aligned with God's purposes in saving the lost. And so I really know of no other more simple, more captivating way to say it than to say if we are going to see God use us to share the gospel with people that need it, if we are going to see God make it here at Sharon Heights so that we are constantly filling up the baptistry, if we are going to see altars full, and if we are going to see our family members change, then we have to pray. I know of no other way to say it than we have to be a praying people. If we are going to have opportunities, if we are going to take people by the hand in our church and in other places and take them and lead them to Jesus, then we have to be a praying people. Several years ago, I encountered a a concept from a preacher named Jack Miller who's dead now that I've never gotten over. And it was a concept of what he called frontline praying. Frontline praying. And he contrasted that with what he called maintenance praying. And you can see how he talks about maintenance praying. Maintenance praying is short. It's mechanical. There's no thought that goes into it. And it's focused on physical needs inside the church. Then he said frontline praying involves a request for grace to confess sins and humble ourselves, a compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost, and a yearning to know God, to see his face, to glimpse his glory. Now, when you look at that, what kind of praying do we do around here? Do we pray... That God would give us comfortable, easy lives where everything is exactly the way it is? Or are we really praying like we are on the front line of God's mission to save the world through Jesus? That's the kind of praying that Paul's asking for here. He's asking for front line praying. So do we pray for God to open doors like that? Do we pray for changed lives? Do we pray for God to do incredible work? Or are we just saying, Lord, please don't let my health decline? Lord, make my life real easy. Lord, bless all my friends real good. And if you do that, then that's enough. Paul says it's not enough. He says it's not enough. He says what we want to do is that God would use us in whatever circumstance we are, whatever health we're in, whatever needs we may have, to use us to share the gospel. Vance Havner once said, I know y'all hadn't heard a good Vance Havner quote in a while, so I figured I'd throw one out. Most prayer meetings are more about keeping the saints out of heaven than they are keeping sinners out of hell. Man, you can say amen or you can say ouch, right? But he's right. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35, says, the Bible says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Man, I'd like to preach for three weeks about that. He said, the, problem, the problem's not out there with the lost people. They're just doing what lost people do. He said, the problem is with the laborers. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what Paul's saying here. And even while I've worked on this sermon this week, my heart has been so convicted and so challenged of how little I pray like this and how little my prayers are and how little I think about prayer. But folks, the truth is that the Bible still says that our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. That the most faith-filled prayer of the most spirit-filled believer in this place tonight cannot touch God's power to work in our lives. So Paul believes in that and he calls upon them to pray. Why? Because he believed the promise of Isaiah 59 and verse number 1 that says God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. 
So just think about our church tonight. What would God do in our church? What would our church look like a year from now if that really gripped us in our hearts? If we didn't just say amen to it in a sermon, but we really prayed that way. So where do we start? Where do we start? What do I pray? Well, I'm going to challenge you to start praying this one prayer every day. I want to start praying this one prayer every day. And I'm going to pray it with you. I think we've got it on the screen here, maybe. This simple prayer. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Give me wisdom to see it and boldness to take it. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. He's probably already doing that. Give me the wisdom to see it and the boldness to take it. Now, if you are like me, you don't really realize you've had good opportunities to talk about Jesus until they're over. Three days later, you're sitting in the drive-thru at Jack's. It's like, dude, it was right there in front of me. And you didn't realize it. Lord, give me wisdom to see it. And then we've all had those opportunities where we know God has opened the door. And because of fear or because of inconvenience or awkwardness or whatever, we just don't take it. Lord, every day, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Give me wisdom to see it and the boldness to take it. Second, you should have on the end of the pew a card like this one. Everybody see these? If those are on your end, will you pass it to everybody on your row so that everybody has a card just like this in your hand? And I'll give you a second to do that. And they may not be distributed equally thanks to some trouble with the copy machine. But there are enough for, certainly for everybody here. Even our folks in the media, but sorry. There wasn't a whole lot of planning went ahead in that, sorry. Now I mentioned this to you last week. That this Easter, which Easter, you know, in a Baptist church in Alabama, man, that's, you have to go to church on Easter, right? You have to go to church on Easter. And so it's a natural day when people that don't normally come to church will be here. But I want you to think about our Easter service this year. We are, I believe, either seven or eight Sundays away from Easter. Maybe nine. Who's the one person in your life that you would love to have with you at church here at Sharon Heights on Easter that normally they're not with you? It may be a child. Maybe they grew up here at church. They don't come anymore. Maybe a grandchild that has gone to a different church for years and years and years, but has now been out of church for years and years and years. Maybe your boss, and you just want God to save your boss so you can stand to go to work every day. You know, I don't have to be real spiritual. But who is the one person, who is the one person that you can write their name on this card, and between now and Easter, you pray that God gives you an opportunity to invite them to come and worship with us on Easter. Who is that person? Take just a second and write that down. I know that name's in the back of your mind. You've probably got two or three, and that's okay. But who is... Your one person that you would like to invite. I'm going to take mine and I'm going to do it too. And so you've got a name. You've got somebody specific and strategic to pray for. God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with this person. Give me the wisdom to see that opportunity. Give me the boldness to take that opportunity. We're going to invite them to church to come worship with us on Easter. We're going to pray that they come. We're going to pray that God does something miraculous in their heart. And if nothing else, we're going to love them the way Jesus loved us when they come. 
And we're going to treat them good, and we're going to be glad that they come. Amen? So, here's what we're going to do at the end of service. At the end of service, when we're done, before we have our business meeting, we're going to take these and we'll lay them on the communion table. And what we're going to do is we're going to start displaying these regularly so that you see them. You see these names and you pray for these names. You know who yours is. But we're going to put somebody else's card in your hands too so that you pray for their one. And we are, God willing, going to get together a team of people who are going to get together every week between now and Easter to pray for that service, to pray for these people, and to pray for the work that God wants to do here. So do you have your one? You ready to invite them? Pray for what two of you are. So praise God we'll have two more on Easter than we normally do. Pray for those people and let God work. So Paul says, talk to God about others. But he also says the opposite. Talk to others about God. Look at what he says. He says, verse number 4, his prayer is that he would share the gospel in prison and that it would be clear. The gospel doesn't do any good if it's not clear. It's, if it's obscured by our ignorance, if it's obscured by our arrogance, if it's obscured by our awkwardness, the gospel does no good. So he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The King James renders that, redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. He said, because whether you realize it or not, folks, we're one day closer to heaven than we were yesterday, aren't we? That means that this person is one day closer to hell. You realize that? We don't, I know we don't think about life in those terms. We're just thinking about our plans for the weekend, and we're thinking about paying the bills at the end of the month. I get that. But Paul's saying, listen, time is running out. There have been several Sundays when I've left this place on Sunday night and walked to my car and thought, that's one less Sunday I'll get to preach the Word of God. Today's one less day you're going to have to share the gospel with people. So Paul says, make the most of that time. And so he says, yes, walk in wisdom. Use your life to share the gospel. But he doesn't just say use your life to share the gospel. He says use your lips to share the gospel, right? He says let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So let's, what does it mean to be gracious? Well, it means what you think it means. It means to be kind to people. You're not going to be an effective witness for Jesus if you are a jerk for Jesus, okay? It's not going to work. You've got to be good to people. And I'm going to introduce to you uh, an evangelism tool in just a minute. And it is specifically geared to help you talk to people when they are hurting. And friends, if you want to share the gospel with hurting people, you'll never run out of an audience to share the gospel with. And I knew I'd be talking about this a little bit tonight and doing some things in the church leading in this area. And Tuesday morning, I was on the ninth floor at UAB and walked through the burn and trauma intensive care unit. You walk through there and you realize we live in a world that is broken. And it's not just there. Because I assure you, you could go three or four blocks over and in those huge buildings there are people that are living a very, very good life that are making very, very impressive salaries and in their hearts they are broken. And they're hiding addiction issues and they're hiding sexual trauma and they're hiding guilt and they're hiding shame. Paul says, be gracious to those people. Then he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Now, look, I know some of y'all got some pretty salty language when you watch football. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in this text. And I know y'all were afraid to laugh at that, weren't you? That's all right. He's talking not about salty language. But he's talking about salty language in the sense that salt is something that increases your appetite for more. It makes something appetizing. It makes something palatable. It's like eating a potato. There's nothing in the world more boring and bland than a plain white potato, is there? Doesn't matter if you bake it. Doesn't matter if you boil it. Doesn't matter if you fry it. Doesn't matter if you put it in a milkshake. It's terrible. But if you put some salt on it, then you've got something. 
And you don't need really much more than salt to make it worth eating. And he's talking about sharing the gospel in a way that makes it appetizing. Now, I know we're super spiritual. We know the Bible. You say, you say, Brother Jesse, wait a minute. I heard what you said to us Wednesday night. You said that nobody seeks after God. The natural man receiveth not the things after God. Yea, and amen. But I also know this is true. That if we are really interested in the gospel, and if we are really interested in non-believers, then we will work hard to make the gospel interesting to non-believers. I believe that. So what we're going to try and do over the next few weeks is not just talk about sharing the gospel. We're going to try and train you to share the gospel. In all the different ways, hopefully, that the Bible talks about it. Because here's what we do. And Brother Keith is such a great example of how to get this right. Here's what we do when we share the gospel. We, we share the gospel sometimes, and we're like, well, hey, you know, you're a sinner. That means you broke all the rules. And the Bible does say in the book of 1 John that sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is breaking rules. But it's not just breaking rules, is it? What Keith did so well in sharing the gospel with that brother. And we give God the glory for it because he said he didn't even mean to do it. So God gets the glory for this. What he did so well is he took a theme of scripture and he used it to share the gospel. What was the theme? The theme of sacrifice. So how do you share the gospel? Instead of just saying, hey, look, man, you're a sinner. You broke all the rules. You know what you tell people? A lot of things you could tell them. The Bible talks about sin as being in rebellion to God. Being a part of the wrong kingdom. The Bible talks about sin as worship that is pointed in the wrong direction. The Bible talks about sin in countless different ways. We're going to talk about that. How to make the gospel palpable and appetizing to people that need it. And, and we're going to talk about how you can not just share the gospel, the story of the gospel, but how you can share the story of your life. And how the gospel has made a difference in your life. I believe every Christian ought to be able to share their testimony in three minutes. Can you do that? We're going to help you do it. Some of you think you can do it in three, and it would take you 30 seconds. And that's cool. Some of y'all think you can do it in three, and it'd take you three hours. And that's cool if they're still listening. But you need to be able to do it in three minutes so that when you get that scam phone call on your phone, and they want to ask you about your auto warranty, in three minutes you can share the gospel. No, not really, but, but so that you can share the story of how Jesus changed your life quickly and in a way that is amazing. So... We're going to talk about those kind of conversations with friends, co-workers on spiritual matters. We're going to have a time of hands-on training. We're going to do that next week. Next Sunday night, our service is going to look different than it does tonight. Next Sunday night, you come. We're going to do some training in how to share the gospel. That means you're going to have to talk to people at church. Yes. Yes. So. You are going to leave on Sunday nights for the next few Sunday nights with homework. Yes, you are. And you can't fail here. But if we don't share the gospel, we will fail up there. So, here's your homework for next Sunday night. Okay? I know some of y'all want to take notes and write this down, so make sure you get this. Here's your homework. And everybody's going to know if you do it or you don't do it. And we will judge you. We're Baptists, so I mean, you know. <laughs> Here's your homework. Bring a notebook with you next Sunday night to church. That's it. Because I want you to take some notes that you can go back to, rely on, and remember. So bring a notebook with you next Sunday night to church. And you say, well, preacher, I can't afford a notebook. That's fine. I'll go to DG and buy you one. It might have My Little Pony and Care Bears on it, but we'll get you a notebook. And if I go buy it for you, it will, I promise you. 
Paul says we do all of this, our speech gracious, our speech seasoned with salt, so that you would know how to answer each person. I pray that God uses Sharon Heights Baptist Church so that every person in Jefferson County, Alabama, clearly hears the gospel. And we're going to work hard on doing that. We're going to introduce to you next week a tool to help you turn ordinary, everyday conversations into gospel conversations. And that tool is called the Three Circles Evangelism Presentation. We're going to talk about that. And we'll give you just a brief glimpse of that on a video starting in three, two, now. Maybe. Our God has a design, a way things should be done. As humanity, you know, you and me, we have chosen sin and have departed God's design. But God in His goodness and grace has made a way for us to be made right, to be made whole. He has sent us good news, the gospel. We then begin this incredible pursuit of Jesus where he takes us as broken sinners and turns us into bold men and women willing to live our life on a mission. So let's begin this journey together now of what it looks like to take everyday conversations and turn them into gospel conversations. All right, y'all excited? It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun.